0: have been enjoying wine for 8,000 years or more, and there's never been entry exams, literacy tests, diplomas, or membership fees. You can go as far or deep as you want, or just take it all in and find your happy place. That being said, we like to spend our week looking for things that we can share with you in this space and time. We'll give you food for thought ideas for adventures and most weeks tips pointers and insights that you can use the minute the program ends wine has always united us it still does and we've never needed that more so climb aboard there is no time like the present to get your adventure started so here's your host the doctor of deliciousness the chairman of the bordeaux the top gun of wine fun david wilson
1: sometimes when I just really look forward to an interview so, so, so much. And today, the guest that I have for you is a really amazingly interesting person who is really focused on one topic that we barely talk about because it's just something that I found that a lot of Americans just are not, I can't say they're not interested in it. They just haven't discovered it. And it's probably my fault for not making the effort to make it something that is more mainstream. And I'm actually talking about Okay, I'm going to say orange wines, and I hate that term. God, I hate that term. So maybe we should just say amber wine. And my guest happens to be the author of a really super cool book and it is called The Amber Revolution. And my guest is Simon J. Wolf. Simon, do I have to say J every time or can I just call you Simon?
2: (laughs) You can call me Simon if you want. I mean, I put the J there to distinguish myself from the many other Simon Wolfs on this planet, but...
1: For many years, I called myself D. Warren Wilson because I found that the name David Wilson was a bit (laughs) common, a little too common. (laughs) Anyway, and I did find that there are some other Simon Wolfs out there. And one in particular, I think is an important classical musician. But you have a music background as well, right? That's one of your passions, isn't it?
2: I do, actually. I mean, yeah, I do have a music background. I I originally was a classical musician and went to university and everything and pretty much had it drilled out of me, unfortunately. And then I went into the pop music industry after university. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. So basically, while I was at university and leading up to university, I was convinced that I was going to spend the rest of my life playing in orchestras. And then unfortunately at university or maybe not unfortunately actually what i learned was that the most interesting people were not the people in the music department they were all the other people that i met studying other subjects interesting so by the end of those three years i was done with the classical music world i just felt like it was too cliquey not open-minded enough and you know i was drumming in bands and i also i'd become a sound engineer basically so i spent i think the first i don't know six seven years of my professional life on tour with bands or sitting behind a mixing console in recording studios.
1: Okay, this is interesting. So are there any bands that we know that you were touring with?
2: Um, I don't think there was anyone very well known, but I think listeners of a certain vintage who were into psychedelia might might be aware of the band (laughs) Gong.
1: (laughs) We're going to get to the wine part, I promise you this, but there have been some comments that I found posted about you that have to do with your unusual taste in music. <laughs> and then you just said psychedelia, so we're not going to let that fizzle into the background. What are we talking about?
2: Yeah, well, I guess I guess you could say I have a broad taste in music, and most of it is quite eclectic. I mean, I've always loved more avant-garde music. I loved electronic music, even when I was entrenched in the classical music world. But yeah, lots of weird and wonderful stuff. I'm a huge Frank Zappa fan. I'm a jazz lover, too. Anything that's not the ordinary, really. All um, right, I'm, so I'm, you'll,
1: be, you'll be pleased to know that I grew up in the town... Camarillo, if you're okay. a fan. <laughs> yeah. He, he had a big hit, Camarillo Brillo. Exactly. I don't know how old you are, but when the Moog synthesizer came along and there were people like Keith Emerson and Rick Wakeman and others that were making this really incredible synthetic music. Is that something that you love?
2: Um yeah, definitely. And in fact, yeah, when I was at school, when I was a teenager, I started listening to sort of really kind of classic rock and prog rock, much to the dismay of my mom who was rooting for me to become a sort of amazing classical musician. And instead, I was spending my whole time listening to Genesis and Pink Floyd and stuff like that.
1: Oh, so awesome. Yeah, I love it. All right. So we will get into the wine thing now. One of the things that has been written about you is that I think that just generally speaking, you are somewhat left or somewhat right of the mainstream But you're not a mainstream guy. I can just tell that from your taste in music, uh, (laughs) your taste in wine, and everything else that I've read about you. By the way, you have another book that is very interesting to me that focuses on the wine industry in Portugal. Can you just give us a little bit of information about that?
2: Sure. I mean, in a way, it's a similar concept to my first book, Amber Revolution, because I think where I see orange wine as being the underdog wine style of the modern age, and Portugal has been a bit of an underdog as well, especially when it comes to wine. So the aim, with my friend and collaborator Ryan Nopaz, because we we did that book together, the aim was really just to kind of tell forgotten stories about forgotten wines, really, and just to try and open people's eyes to the richness and and diversity of Portugal and its wine.
1: How did Portugal manage to stay in kind of a Back seat for such a long time when they were so important to the history of wine. I mean, especially when, you know, the British were sending ships over there to bring massive amounts of that wine back to Britain. Their wines were such an important part of the birth of wine. I, and I know wine's been around for thousands of years, but I'm just talking about in the Western world. What happened?
2: Well, you've actually hit the number of it there. The thing about the Portuguese is they've been amazing traders and good business people for centuries. But what I discovered is that they're not very good at telling their own story. Huh. So port wine, which is what you're referring to, I guess, I mean, you know, sure. port wine was a style that was effectively created by the British yes. for export. And so, of course, the Portuguese were very happy to satisfy that demand. But if, if you go to the Douro Valley, you won't find Portuguese people drinking port wine. <laughs> you know, if you show up, they'll say, okay, right, uh, this is the best wine in the world. This is port. But as soon as you're gone, they won't be drinking that for the, rest of the yeah.
1: So the British effectively were the catalyst for making Portuguese wines sweet and higher in alcohol and therefore easier to transport without spoilage. And it became a thing in Britain. Exactly. In Britain. Exactly.
2: Yeah. In Britain and also, you know, the Dutch were heavily invested in that as well. To this day, when you go to Villanova de Gaia, uh, across the water from Porto, you'll find that most of the big port houses have their history in English families or Dutch families. Almost none have their history in Portuguese families. And this is the thing. If you really go on a search for what, I don't know, what we might call authentic Portuguese wine, you know, what's the Portuguese cultural tradition? That's much harder to find. And I would say that, you know, just kind of small artisanal wineries of the sort that we're used to seeing in Italy or France is very much a late 20th century thing in Portugal. And that's really when that movement got going.
1: Interesting. You know, I've been telling listeners for a really long time. And I don't know if I told you this, Simon, but I owned a wine bar, a large wine bar for quite a long time. And I sold a lot of Portuguese wines. And I've preached about Portuguese wines. And for the American audience especially, those varietals, even though we mostly can't pronounce them in America, are so compatible with American tastes, whether it's the most favored Bordeaux's or uh, Rhone's. Those wines are well received by Americans who are willing to taste them. And I imagine that would be the case in the rest of Europe and other parts of the world as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. To me, it's a wine paradise, especially if you're a bit geeky about wines. If you have a love like me for, you know, unusual grape varieties or very ancient traditional winemaking methods, then Portugal should be your go-to. But I think one of the problems of getting people in front of these wines, and you may have experienced this, I guess, is that what's the most traditional thing in Portugal the most traditional thing is this thing called the field blend oh. so in other words there's no grape variety on the label and I think people in the modern age and you guys are partly to blame actually you know it's the in the US Australia the we do. New Zealand you all started labelling your wines with the grape variety front and centre on the that label was a
1: good idea. that
2: was a good yes, idea but it screwed the Portuguese because most of their traditional styles a lot of their best wines are blends and somehow you know a lot of wine drinks because they have this idea in their mind that a blend is somehow inferior.
1: All they have to do is write on the label, if you love X, you'll love this wine. That's all anybody <laughs> wants. People just yeah. don't want to spend money on a bottle of wine and take a chance on something that they don't understand. And wine is very unique in that way because it is pricey and you are gambling unless you can taste it. But the opportunities to taste wine aren't really that great for most people. Simon J. Wolf is an author of multiple books. He's also the founder and the editor of The Morning Claret. Am I saying claret, by the way, the British way? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Claret. Okay. Why? um, No, no, I'll save this for when we come back. I want to know why morning, just (laughs) out of curiosity. But we're going to come back and we will talk about that and many other things, but we're going to dive into a giant barrel
0: of orange wine in just a moment with Simon J. Wolfe stay with me. David will be back with more grape encounters right after they touch up his hair and makeup. Oh wait, this is, this is radio. Well, there's still paparazzi after the show to deal with. No.
1: The only thing that Mendocino County winemaker Greg Graziano can't tell you about wine is how many different choices he makes. It's somewhere between dozens and cowabunga. Artisans like Greg don't count, they create. Did da Vinci or Michelangelo take inventory? Let's just say that Italians like Greg can easily get carried away, especially when it comes to food and wine. Great wine is in Greg's DNA. His immigrant grandparents started making Mendocino wines in the early 20s, and despite being the head honcho of the much-beloved Graziano family of wines, Greg is just a humble, lovable guy. When you play in the dirt all day, you can't help but be down to earth. Ask your wine cellar for Graziano wines or just visit GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. They've got five different brands. Why? Well, because Italians tend to have big families.
3: Life is just more fun with a Graziano at your table. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure, those health nuts are actually dry farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine. Walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. mmorganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. mmorganics.com eating any other nuts is just plain nuts.
0: Welcome back to Grape Encounters. Did you know there are more compounds in wine than in blood? Maybe vampires ought to rethink their drink.
1: I would say that at least once a week, I get into a debate with people, and this is very recent, about whether I should call it orange wine or amber wine, or should I just continue to call it white wine, even though it's not white. And I have probably the most perfect authority here to answer that question, I just hope he answers it the way I want him to. And I haven't talked to him about this particular question, but I hope he's on my side on this one because I just get really irritated about this subject. Simon J. Wolf is with me. He is a very well-known writer. He writes for a lot of the major publications that if you are a wine geek, you will read, including Decanter, which is absolutely fabulous. He's written for Punch Drink. You've written for uh, Jancis Robinson. That's as high as... It. it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, <laughs> that's like climbing to the top of Mount Everest if you get to write with her. She was my last interview, live interview, in-person interview before COVID. I mean, literally three days after I did the interview with her, the COVID thing hit and we got (laughs) lucky. So that was a good way to finish. Anyway, Simon, you have this website called The Morning Claret and Claret used to just refer to anything Bordeaux, right? But now I've noticed that people are using the word to refer to anything that's
2: kind of like Bordeaux, which is it? Well, I mean, if you're asking why is my site called The Morning Claret actually? Well, it's it's
1: really two questions. Let's start with why your site is called The Morning Claret, and then let's figure out if Claret is being prostituted now.
2: (laughs) Sure, yeah. No, so basically, the the reason it's called The Morning Claret is because a long, long time ago, it must be almost 12 years now, I entered a a competition to write a tasting note about a Bordeaux wine. And this is way before I had any dreams of ever writing about wine or anything. And I liked what I'd written for this competition, and I was bored at work. So I created a wine blog, I downloaded WordPress, installed it, and I thought, okay, what am I going to call this? just for fun and the morning clara was my idea of a joke because I love Bordeaux, although I don't talk about that very much. And I thought the morning claret, it's supposed to sound like a newspaper and of course, you know, there's a kind of double joke if you want to interpret it that, oh, I'm probably an alcoholic that drinks claret in the morning. So it's (laughs) just a sort of stupid, uh, twisted English humor kind of thing really.
1: When I first saw the name, I just thought to myself, that's a nice name, but I didn't really analyze it, you know, in terms of what did it really mean? I would certainly suggest somebody that's, you know, sitting at breakfast not with coffee, but with a very bold (laughs) glass of red wine. Exactly. By the way, you know, I live in Italy now, and the thing that I see here constantly is in the morning, you know, the bars become basically coffee bars, but the older Italian men, they flock to these places every morning around seven o'clock in the morning, and they're drinking wine. Cheap, (laughs) cheap jug wine, but they drink a lot of it, but it's not usually red wine. It's typically white wine. Anyway, the second question is, claret is a word that we only see a little bit in the U.S., but again, it's supposed to mean, I guess, anything Bordeaux.
2: Bordeaux red or
1: all Bordeaux.
2: Well, yeah, claret historically is, yeah, indeed, it's the term that the English gave for the red wines of Bordeaux. There are a lot of other similar but confusing terms. So there's claret with an I in it. And that term um, often means, as far as I can figure out, it often seems to mean a very, very light red. So there's now an official style in Bordeaux actually called claret. It's a bit heavier than a rosé, but it's, you know, ultra light lightweight easy drinking yeah. red style probably unoaked and then Just to make things even more confusing, in Spain and Portugal, you also have kind of quite old-fashioned traditional styles of wine called claret, which generally, I think in Portugal, is used, again, to mean an an extremely light red, you know, so light that it could almost be mistaken for a rosé. But in Spain, can mean a blend of red and white grapes, also made as a... Okay, so this leaves me completely
1: confused, because if you have a bold Bordeaux, and that's a claret, and then other people are using the same or similar term to describe a red that is really super light, then I guess claret means anything.
2: <laughs> Just- I think where it comes from is that back in the day, you know, when the English coined the term claret, which must be two hundred or more years ago. Yeah. Bordeaux wines two hundred years ago were not like they are now. Okay. Bordeaux okay. was a marginal region for growing grapes. You know, you couldn't ripen Cabernet Sauvignon reliably every year in that climate. Even into the nineteen eighties. Okay. So I think claret as it was originally named probably was very light, but obviously times have changed, and posh gentlemen in the fancier parts of London still refer to red Bordeaux as claret. So why, means- why did
1: they feel the need to come up with a different term? Why didn't they just call it Bordeaux? Was it just that the British couldn't pronounce that French word?
2: Is that what it was? I think it's probably that there was claret and the British couldn't pronounce that properly, so they bastardized <laughs> it as claret. Yeah, I think that's All exactly right. what happened.
1: Okay, Simon, is it white wine? Is it amber wine or is it orange wine? You know, some people don't like to
2: use one or more of those terms. I fear that I'm going to disappoint you here, but oh, uh, no. let's be very clear on this. So I have not come up with any of these terms myself. I'm just an observer, really. So what I observe over the last 10 years or so is that the most commonly used term for skin fermented white wine is orange wine. Whether or not we like that or we're comfortable with it, I kind of think it makes the most sense. And and the reason for that is partly that, for me, it sits in the mix nicely with the terms red, white and rosé. So I think if we accept these terms, red, white, and rosé wine, I think orange wine fits in nicely as the fourth category. And to me, they're all ways of categorizing a combination of grapes and skins, or grapes without skins.
1: Okay, but the problem that I have with this issue of calling it orange wine is that there are wines that look very orange, many, many of them, of course, but then there are wines that are not left in contact with the skin for quite as long as these deeper, darker ones, and they're very amber in color. There's no way I could call that orange. So am I just trying to compartmentalize things more than I probably should? I don't know. Help me out I
2: think you're getting hung up with something that a lot of people get hung up with, and that's... Being literal
1: is what it is, I guess.
2: Yeah, but I think it's very easy to talk about wine by color, and actually it's not. And So I I sat down and thought about this when I had to write a piece for a, a magazine called World of Fine Wine about these categories and what they mean and when i really thought about it long and hard i realized that actually when we call something white wine we really don't care what color it is we're describing a wine that's made from a white grape variety that has been fermented off its skins whether that wine ends up being a light yellow green color or a deep gold color or even a slightly rusty brown color if it's been aged and spent a long time in oak we don't care the one thing that white wine is never is white well (laughs) that's true. Have you ever seen white wine that's white? I haven't. No, I know. You're right. I think that's called milk. Exactly. Okay. And when you think about it, it's the same for red. You know, red wines are not actually red. They can be a purple color. They can be a sort of navy or, you know, getting darker and darker, sort of crimson burgundy maybe. But again, they're, they're never this primary red color.
1: So you give me an idea uh, of a revolution that maybe you and I could start that could just sort this thing out once and for all. Okay. Are you mm-hmm. game to at least hear my idea? I'm right
2: there with you. <laughs> All right.
1: We're talking to Simon J. Wolf, the founder and editor of The Morning Claret. And by the way, just go check the site out. It's really content rich. And he's also the author of a couple of wonderful books, including the, what's this book called? The Amber Revolution, not the Orange Revolution. The, I'm so confused, Simon. <laughs> That's another topic. <laughs> I'm just, we
2: can I'm talk just, about I'm that too. I'm just shaking
1: like. my head now. You're confusing me. Okay, we'll be back with Simon in just a second
0: with more Grape Encounters. Did you know that some wines are just as delicious and desirable after a 100 years as they were when they were young? Hmm, should, should I be seeing a winemaker instead of my doctor? Grape Encounters will return right after this.
1: Smoke from increasing wildfires is tainting wine grapes and vineyard executives are looking for new ways to adapt. Pure Fresh Wine's O3 technology helps vineyards overcome the problems caused by wildfire smoke by treating grapes pre-crush to improve fermentation and overall wine quality as well as removing smoke taint. For the typical winery, saving a full harvest of grapes with Pure Fresh Wine costs only 10 cents per bottle. O3 technology has been approved by the FDA and USDA. It leaves no residue and uses no chemicals. It provides many benefits to wineries, including the removal of sulfur, pesticides, and fungicides pre-crush, the reduction of bad bacteria and mold issues, an improvement in roundness and fruit-forward palate notes, and so much more. Most importantly, it safely and naturally breaks down smoke-taint molecules to save grapes from damage. Rescue your harvest from smoke taint. Visit purefreshwine.com today.
0: We're back with more grape encounters. Did you know that there are approximately 600 grapes in every glass of wine and about 3000 in every bottle? And remember that breakfast cereal commercial that claimed there were two scoops of raisins in every package of their brand flakes product? It's a good thing most people don't drink wine for breakfast because the potential to have more than your fair daily share of grapes is definitely there. Thank goodness farmers grow more grapes than any other fruit. Aren't grapes groovy?
1: All right, so now I am totally and completely confused. I'm talking to Simon J. (laughs) Wolf, the author of The Amber Revolution. I asked him a moment ago, should we call it orange wine? Should we call it amber wine? Maybe we should just call it dark white, (laughs) something like that. And he's told me that it really probably should be called orange wine, which is why he labeled his book The Amber Revolution.
2: (laughs) Simon, what gives? Well, uh, there's there's a few explanations for that. First of all, I, I hope so. let's not forget that the subtitle of the book is How the World Learned to Love Orange Wine. I know. <laughs> but no, the reason I called it Amber Revolution was partly because Orange Revolution... Would have, uh, I think, two different political connotations, one being Ireland. So, obviously, the the Orange Um, Man in Ireland. So, I didn't want people to think that it's a book about the Irish Civil War. And one of the ex Soviet Union countries also, when it broke away from Russia, also had. Something that was called an Orange Revolution, if I'm right. So basically, there were way too many political influences that people might draw if the book had been called Orange Revolution. So that was one good reason for calling it the Amber Revolution. I also just think it sounds better as a book title. And another key thing here is that amber wine is the preferred term in Georgia. So when people have these, you know, very sort of dark, sometimes almost russet brown dark amber wines that have spent six months with their skins in a clay pot. They do like to call those amber wines, and that's also the preferred term of one of the absolute masters of the style in Italy. And I'm talking about Joshko Gravna. So I think, out of deference to him and the Georgians who are a big part of this book, I felt the Amber Revolution was a nice title to go to, even though I still think that orange wine is the best catch-all term that we have, and it's it's the easiest one, the least esoteric one for people to remember.
1: I know it's too late to change things, but I said that there was maybe something that we could do that that could sort this whole thing out. And change the world, I've always thought that it would be better to call out wines or categorize wines by intensity. You know, color doesn't reflect intensity as well as other things could. So we could have mild wines, we could have bada bada bing wines, whatever you want to call them, you know, (laughs) but we're going to be stuck with this for a while. So here's the most important question as people are starting to, and I know starting to probably doesn't apply to parts of Europe. First of all, I've had a lot of bad orange wines that were just too over the top, too astringent for me. I couldn't take it. And I've had some very good ones. My question is this. Let's say we go back 2,000 years ago. Were they making white wines more intense? Did they just say, you know, the way that you make wine is that you leave the skins in contact with the juice for a pretty long time? When did the
2: notion of
1: taking the skins off of the white grapes take
2: place? Certainly parts of Europe where you know winemaking is very well established. Of course we can we can talk about France, we can talk about Germany, we can talk about Italy, you know, places that have millennia of yeah. winemaking history. What we can say is it's basically about technology. So the thing is, if you had grapes and you had a barrel or a clay pot, uh, I hesitate to call it amphora because that's not always really the correct term. But if you had something to let those grapes ferment in, but you didn't have anything else, you could still make wine. You know, you just throw the grapes in there, tread them a bit to get the fermentation going, and you'll end up with a wine. That's effectively the Georgian technique. But then people came up with this thing called a press. Wine presses were not generally available to the average farmer until, I don't know, let's say the last few hundred years. Again, there are some parts of France, maybe some other parts of Europe where wine presses have been in the culture, have been available for as much as a thousand years. But certainly for a a typical family that was just making wine for their own consumption or maybe supplying a few local taverns or whatever, you know, they wouldn't have had anything other than some sort of receptacle to ferment the wine in and maybe something to a jug to carry it in to the tavern. So it's it's really about when particular regions started to build a name for quality. And I think that's why there's a much longer history of what we now call white wine in places like northern France and Germany, for example. Interestingly, I think it's also partly to do with climate because there's this lovely old book written by a slovenian priest in 1844 where he makes comparisons about the climate and he says if you're in this nice cool climate that they have in the north uh-huh. it's a lot easier to ferment without the skins you know you you don't have any worries about the grapes spoiling because it's not it's not hot enough they can sit there all winter and ferment slowly and it's fine but if you're in central europe where it was a little bit hotter then he said it's yes yeah, it's better if you use the skins and get the job done first.
1: The Amber Revolution, to have a revolution, you have to have this fairly large uprising with a lot of buy-in from a lot of people. What is driving that right now?
2: I think what's driving that is we've seen this massive change in attitude over the last 30 years. You know, 30 years ago, I think people were really in the sway of technology. There was this idea that if you're a good winemaker, everything needs to be squeaky clean. And if you're using white grapes, you certainly don't want any of those nasty skins anywhere near them. You don't want any tannins in the wine. It needs to be as clear and translucent as it possibly can. And the message of, I think, pioneers like Gravner and Radicon or the guys in Georgia who've had this style in their culture for 8,000 years was basically, no, actually, there is worth in using the skins of white grapes in the fermentation. You know that If that produces a wine that's darker in color, that has different flavors, different aromas, that has value too. That can also be not just delicious, it can also be fine wine it can be some of the greatest wine in the world and i think getting that message across has been a slow process that was kick-started by winemakers who realized that you know there's no reason why we shouldn't be using the skins of white grapes. Why are we throwing them away? We don't throw away the skins of red grapes. Yeah, no,
1: exactly. Okay, so for the listeners who have never experienced an orange or amber wine, now you are very much dedicated to these wines. You obviously drink a lot of them. They're probably a big preference of yours. Please explain the difference. If I have the choice between a conventional white wine and an amber wine or an orange wine, what will be the difference in those wines? And this is for people who've never experienced it.
2: First of all, let me let me just make the point that it's it's a continuum, just like the difference between rosé and red. Right. You can have very light rosés from the Provence that you'd sip on a summer's day, and you can have slightly heavier ones maybe from the south of Spain. You yeah. can have very light reds, very heavy reds. And I would say the difference between whites and oranges, though, in general, is that with an orange wine, you always have a little bit more texture. And that's one of the things I really love. You know, it's not necessarily that it's going to be out and out, prickly, with tannins but there's always a little bit more of a feeling of, of texture in there which I personally really like and I find that can balance the style nicely of course you, you can expect the, the colour to be a bit more intense but it's such a wide variety I think as we were discussing earlier I think colour is a dangerous thing to judge a wine on because there are orange wines that are very light in colour but I think the other thing to say is that in general the flavours and the aromas are usually I would say a little bit intensified by the skin contact and again if you think in your mind about the difference between rosé and red wine you know maybe you can that's that's a good way to imagine it you know in general we expect red wines to be a little bit more intense a bit more concentrated. And it's the same thing, you know, it's the same difference in winemaking technique, not using the skins versus using the skins.
1: I read something that really opened my eyes. The comment was, if you peel an apple and you set the peels aside and then you just eat the inside of the apple, you have one very distinct flavor and it's very mild and, you know, delicious. If you went over here and you took the skins and you, you chewed on the skins, you'd discover very quickly that much of the flavor of the apple is in those skins. And if you just take a bite into an unpeeled apple, it's going to have much more texture. It's going to be much more interesting and it's going to be much more flavorful than if you just peeled the apple. And I thought that explained the difference between keeping skins in contact with the juice and not.
2: I think I think that's a great explanation. Yeah. And, and definitely it's something I wanted to say. I mean, you get a whole range of flavors and aromas out of a grape that you wouldn't get when yeah. you're not using the skins. I mean, it's something that people say to me all the time. They say, okay, but the problem with orange wines, Simon, is that they don't express their variety. And I'm like, what do you mean they're? don't express their variety. It's just that they taste different. You know, Sauvignon Blanc without its skins has a signature that we all recognize, you know, whether it's, you know, gooseberry or citrus or whatever. Sauvignon Blanc with the skins also has a signature. It's just different. We
1: have to take a break, but I am going to tell you this, that there is no term in the wine industry that gets under my skin more than the term varietal correctness. But I hate (laughs) that term. I've sat on judging panels and had people take away a gold Metal from a fabulous wine because it wasn't varietally correct. Okay. Simon J. Wolf, founder and editor of the Morning Claret, and for our purposes today, we're really focused on his book, The Amber Revolution. We've got one more segment to go. I wish Simon we had about 10 more segments to go because there's about a hundred other things I want to talk to you about. But you know what? If you have a good time, you'll come back, right? Absolutely. Uh, But I noticed I I was reading something that you don't take bribes, right?
2: (laughs) Depends what for.
1: Okay. All right. (laughs) We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. At every family gathering, my brother Steve and I each bring several bottles of wines and try to one-up each other. I bring wines from all over. Steve only brings wines from California's Mendocino wine country, where he's lived for decades. And even though there are hundreds of great wineries there he could choose from, he mostly brings wines from the Graziano family of wines. Now, you'd think you'd see a lot of duplicates from past gatherings since most producers only make 6 to 12 wines, but Graziano has five brands that make literally dozens, upwards of 30 mostly Italian varietals, and all rock stars. Made by the real rock star, Greg Graziano. You can hear my recent interview with Greg at GrapeEncounters.com and you can find Graziano wines all over America or buy them online at GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. I've never confessed how much I love Graziello wines to my brother, and uh, let's keep it that
0: way. If you tried a different wine grape varietal every day, it would take more than 27 years for you to get through the list. And while you're busy tasting all those choices, winemakers around the world will be coming up with countless blends to set you back so to uncomplicate things we'll help you sort things out in the wine world and point you to the stuff that we think you'll find essential and unforgettable starting right here today on grape encounters with david wilson simon
1: wolf is with me he is the author of the amber revolution a book that is so cool that you can actually buy a fine art print of the cover that's a pretty cool idea. I don't think I've ever seen anybody
2: do that before. Uh, you know, I'm kind of proud of the artwork and I, I i love my designers. I think one of the reasons that we did these fine art prints is that both of these books were crowdfunded on, on the platform Kickstarter. Oh, wow. really? Okay. So we wanted to come up with some special rewards for people who who pitched in money to support the book. So that was one of the things you could get if you were one of the more generous supporters. So that's I think that's where the idea started.
1: What I love about it is you don't commercialize it because you don't even put your name on it. It's really super cool. So if you want to show off your rebelliousness, then you should definitely go to the Morning Claret and look for this. But something I wanted to ask you, and I hope this isn't a stupid question. Are people blending amber wines with wines that have not been fermented on the skins?
2: Is that happening? It's very definitely happening. And I think here's the interesting thing. There were actually plenty of winemakers who were doing that even before the idea of orange wine became a thing. So there have always been winemakers who wanted to experiment. And there have always been winemakers who thought, okay, what happens if I leave the skins in the ferment with these white grapes? There's actually a couple of wineries in Portugal where that definitely to happen. Nobody talked about it. Nobody put on the label. But yeah, I think it's one of the developments I've seen that I quite like is that more and more winemakers, especially in the new world, actually, especially US, South Africa, can think of a couple of examples, winemakers realize that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can decide to take two lots of a grape variety, skin ferment one and not the other, and then blend them to achieve the perfect wine that you want.
1: There was a time when you did not see blends on the shelf at all. Or if you did, the blends were cheap because they were blending things to come up with something that was palatable. Now, certainly where I come from, the blends are commanding the highest prices. What happened, Simon? I mean, it's really a, quite a phenomenon, and it's only happened literally in the last 10 years.
2: I think, actually, in a way, it's we're cycling back to where we were before, and we talked about Bordeaux earlier. Right. I mean, Bordeaux red wines and white wines are almost invariably blends. Right, right. Um, always have been when you go and buy your weekly bottle of Chateau Mouton Rothschild or whatever it might be. it's yeah. a joke, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't... laughs> that does not say Cabernet Sauvignon on the front because it's a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot and God knows what else, you know. So one of the most famous styles of wine on the planet is and has always been a blend. I think if you go around Italy, there are many regions in Italy where the traditional style that has the DOCG, you right. know, Chiam- is a good example, are traditionally blends. I guess
1: when you're allowed to put up to 25% of something else in a bottle and still call it that varietal, which is true in many parts of the world. Yes, we're drinking blends, but didn't know we were drinking blends. But now it's a point of pride to call it the wolf blend and then have, you know, four or five different things in the bottle and people go, oh, that's fantastic. The Australians started mixing with a passion Cabernet Sauvignon and Shiraz. And they were shipping that out. And I kept seeing more and more and more of that. Then Americans started doing it. And then I come from the Paso Robles region of California. And that's just sort of the blending capital of America. They just blend so many different things because we produce so many different varietals. So anyway, I love blends though. For me, how about you?
2: Absolutely. I think often, I think that the blend is often the way to greater complexity in wine. And I think, uh, yeah, we get way too hung up about single varietals really. And it's quite it's quite a modern concept, you yeah. know. As wine started to be sold with the grape variety being the most important yeah. thing on the label. That that only really started probably mid eighties, nineteen nineties, I would say. And you know, the country that's very dear to my heart for wine, Portugal is the classic example of a, a country where the variety was never the thing.
1: Absolutely. Okay, I don't want to go without asking you about pairing wine and food. Somebody who I just dearly love, he's one of the most decorated psalms in America. His name is Tim Hanai. Do you know Tim? I do, yeah. Okay. I do. So Tim made major headlines a few years back when he was addressing a group of people in New Zealand. They were talking about Sauvignon Blanc, and he was asked about pairing uh, wine. And food, and he said, I think it's all BS. But he (laughs) didn't say BS, he used the entire phrase. And boy, did he get a lot of attention for that. And I couldn't wait to get him on the show because I was so pleased that somebody finally, you know, stood up for the people who just want to eat whatever and drink whatever with it. We've just gone too far, haven't we?
3: I think
2: people get way too hung up about it. And it's just another way of putting the fear of God into wine drinkers. And I think that's a shame because the best advice is always to drink a wine that you love with the food that you love. I do think there are combinations that, work better or or worse, but it's partly personal taste. I think another thing worth saying is that orange wines for me are a sweet spot with wine and food pairing, because you can really stop worrying. Once you you have the freshness of a white wine, you have the texture of a red wine in one package. So what could go wrong? But we shouldn't get hung up about it. I really like that you have that take on it because I hate this thing when I go to a dinner party and someone says, I've selected the best wine here. And I'm like, it doesn't matter.
1: And and how stupid are wineries? I'm sorry, I got a lot of winery listeners (laughs) here, but really, let me just say something to the people who listen to me in Napa and Sonoma. I just want to say this to you. You do these wine pairing dinners, you know, and you come up with these elaborate food items to pair with your wines, like escargot with cream of avocado and mint. And then it pairs perfectly with this wine that you produced over here. You are only hurting yourself because people now get that on their email and they go, well, I just don't even know where to get escargot with cream of avocado and mint. You are so much more order to say this wine pairs with everything including toothpaste
2: exactly (laughs) (laughs) want to sell the wine say it pairs with everything but David then we need to know what type of toothpaste they have
1: Well, here's the thing you don't pair orange wine with a whitening toothpaste okay (laughs) that's a bad idea you put this orange wine in your mouth and all of a sudden it goes white (laughs) Simon Wolf you are a gas you are so much fun will you come back
2: of course it'd be a pleasure you gotta have you back what what will you saying about the bribes though when does that kick in bribes Bri- <laughs> I said I said
1: br- I said brides I could find you a bride <laughs> I don't think I said bribes all right Simon J Wolf when I read some of his work I said oh this guy's got the same sense of humor that I've got but just with a British accent although he lives in the Netherlands I should point that out that's a topic for another discussion why he is over there instead maybe has a thing for wooden shoes but wouldn't you like to know more about amber wines <laughs> oh <laughs> Okay, it's called The Amber Revolution. Simon J. Wolfe is the author, and you can find it pretty much everywhere. That's it. Thanks very much. Lots of fun. Okay, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. We'll see you next week. Talk to you then. Are you following Grape Encounters on social media yet? you're not well you should be it's the best way to hear the latest juiciest unfiltered wine stories it's also the single best way to keep our unpretentious decidedly different wine conversations going strong we're on instagram and twitter at grape encounters for tons of content on facebook you'll want to join our grape encounters radio group page or if linkedin is more your thing Connect with me by typing Grape Encounters Radio or Grape Encounters David in the search bar. Here's the deal the more you click, the more I'll pour.